Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Paula Rosecki, a certified mindset and leadership coach and independent facilitator. She's known as the culture coach and helps high achieving bilinguals and children of immigrants stop living someone else's idea of success and start having the confidence fulfillment, and wealth they want. Welcome to the show, Paula. Hello, Douglas. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. So let's start off with just learning a little bit more about how you got your work started. Specifically, you know, just curious how facilitators find their path into facilitating and really just interested in the work you're doing with bilinguals. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so I noticed early on that I was very fascinated by people who were not quite like me, and I loved watching people's patterns of behavior and how they think. I grew up in a community of folks who did not speak English, and I think that really formulated how I approached the world, so much so that when I studied sociology and psychology. And after college, I went and uh, lived in Europe for a long time and learned a second language. It was the second language of my parents. I lived in their home country for a while. And that really formed kind of my professional approach and how I approach people in general. And then when I came back to the States, I did get a corporate job and when people wanted to work on the the fancy brands, I decided I, although I was working on a fancy brand, I decided I wanted to work on multicultural work and really help people understand people of other cultures. And I, even in that setting, I always veered towards people who looked a little different and maybe didn't sound like me. And I just found them intriguing. So I was always kind of interested in in learning more about them. So that's kind of my path to why I wanted to help people who are bilingual or children of immigrants, as I am one of them. So that's how I got to this particular spot. There have been a few things in between, though, of course. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So how did you first find your way into facilitation? That's always a really fascinating moment. I think yeah. when folks kind of start to identify with facilitation and even coaching, I would say. Yeah, yeah. 
So I came to facilitation really through market research and moderation. I'm a longtime qualitative market researcher. And I had been just feeling like market research was about information gathering. And facilitation to me was intriguing because it brought in different types of tools, a different kind of energy, and a slightly different level of creativity. Not that moderating can't be creative, but I felt like just some of the tools that were used were interesting to me to try to figure out how to bring in when I'm talking to actual participants. But I also loved the idea of using these types of tools when debriefing and coming up with overall takeaways and involving the stakeholders. So I think facilitation was intriguing to me because it just seemed to bring in a whole allotment of tools that I hadn't been familiar with before. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, it's not just the work that we have to do as far as the product that we're creating and contributing to the organization, but how we collaborate and communicate with our coworkers. So the debrief or the report out that you were talking about really kind of hits on that point. Yeah, absolutely. And just and understanding how you're going to take all of the insights, collect them, and present them in a way that your end stakeholders can really absorb, internalize, and deeply connect with, actually. I really always enjoyed taking the voice of those consumers or participants of our research and highlighting them and actually being the voice of the customer you know, for the end stakeholder. You know, the thing that jumps out to me there is this idea of shared values or understanding or connecting with people's values. And if we're using these techniques with our stakeholders, we, we kind of understand what's in it for them. Mm. And so then if we understand that deeply, it's going to influence the research we do. And then it's also going to influence how we present the research because we understand what's important versus just like, here's what we found. We can layer in that why and create that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I think connecting it back to not only the values or what the outcome is intended to be for that individual, but also for the department and for the company overall and where they're where they're headed and what their overall goals were. I, I love attaching or connecting what one individual says to how a company wants to craft the experience of what they're trying to build and how they're trying to move forward in their organization and, you know, for all of us and what they're trying to create. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, when you tie back to the conversation we were having prior to the recording here around connection and how important that is and how much we, you know, it's just top of mind for us as facilitators. And often when we mention connection, it's this kind of fostering deeper connection, either, you know, visual connection or, you know, uh, understanding of the who we are as humans. And here's yet another example of connection at work, right? It's like we're connecting the, the findings to these needs. So, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think mm -hmm. if as facilitators, we can constantly be looking out for ways we can link things and bring things together, whether it's our emotions, our feelings. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the other kinds of connection should we be thinking about? Mm, I love the idea of connecting data to humans. That is a, it's a huge topic right now in the market research industry and space. 
of, you know, we have so much information. And I think sometimes all of that can get lost and when we don't think about who is it actually touching on the back end and who are we actually servicing with all that data. And all that data really comes down to each data point. And each data point is a human being. And so I, I actually love thinking about that. And that is one of the reasons qualitative research and facilitation of listening sessions and those kinds of things are so valuable because we're taking this idea of big data and making it human, mm. which that's where all the power is. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, so much of our work is qualitative, you know, research. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, easier to get lost in just the data if it's, you know, when folks are doing larger quantitative types of studies. And it kind of, I don't know, maybe fairly early in my journey into qualitative kind of studies and interviews and just trying to understand customers, was working on a project where there was actually a couple that come to mind which were sensitive in nature, right? Emotional for the participant. Mm -hmm. You know, having to think about that, you know, the needs at multiple levels. What are their needs in that moment, in that dialogue? Because I had to connect with them on this level of, I'm not here to be a therapist, but it could easily go into that territory where I need to, you know, offer them safety and, you know, say, hey, we can, we can abort at any point or, you know, would you like me to call someone for you? <laughs> you know, like, uh, and the thing is, the, the reason I bring all this up is I think it's super profound shift. There was a super profound shift in my thinking and my attitude toward this work, having gone through those experiences, because, wow, it's just the, talk about the humanity in the work, right? You start to really, really connect in on it. And I think it, it, it kind of just stays with you. You don't forget those moments. And I think people are just swimming in the data. It's like, it's harder to, to feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, some of my favorite research moments were when I was in an unexpected place. I found myself at a bar with people who didn't look like me. And I, you know, and someone reveals something deeply personal about something they're going through. And you're right, there's always like three conversations going on in my mind in whether it's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation in research or facilitating a room actually. And that is the conversation that you're actually having with the person. There's the conversation that you're having with yourself about what's going on with that person, right? And about like what you're trying to get out of the conversation. But I also think about like the space that we're in as being an entity and kind of and picking up on the communication that's going on around us, whether that's in person in a you know in a physical space or if it's online. Like I think that that space takes on its own energy that is made up of the people within that space. So it's just it's something I've been thinking about lately is is not only that that individual, but also and the collective in that space. What do you think about that, Douglas? I think that's super important. And I think what you're touching on is, you know, foundational in how people should approach facilitation. You know, it's like yeah. thinking about what's the internal dialogue I'm having? How am I connecting with each individual person? Mm -hmm. And then what's happening as a whole? We as a group are an entity, mm -hmm. 
right? And something's happening there. And then also there's, to your point, there's this room, these vibrations that are in the room based on the room, right? The room, the space itself, like the conditions you've set ahead of time are having impacts. And certainly if we push people in the Zoom, they're going to behave different than if we put them in the teams or if we put them in the mural. And, you know, these are choices that we have to make. When we're in the physical space, it was always... Do we have tables or is it just a circular set of chairs? Right. You know, is it a crescent moon? Like, you know, these <laughs> these kinds of decisions will impact how people interact, how they show up and, you know, the vibrations of the room. How does the room resonate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we think about each of the individuals in that room and there. I think one of the things I love about facilitation is thinking of the design of the experience and how you mm. what you want people to leave with and i just I, I love that there are exercises that are designed for creating a sense of belonging for instance right or to stimulate ideation and just this idea that each one of those type there are different types of exercises depending on what you want the feel of the room and the overall outcome to be so i i I just think it's really fun to think about the experience of the the individuals the participants on the receiving end of our facilitation and i i do it obviously for my more corporate clients, but also in coaching. I think it's really, really relevant when you're not only on an individual level on, for that individual person, but also if you're doing small groups, it's making sure that everybody is heard and everybody has something to contribute and can walk away with. So, you know, when you just brought up this notion of facilitation, can and specifically some of the activities being even designed to create more belonging. It reminded me, you know, about your points around multicultural types of work that you're fascinated in. And it just seems to me that with your background and, you know, being a child of immigrants Mm -hmm. and having, I mean, that's your lived experience. And perhaps that fostered your interest in others who are maybe not quite like all the others. (laughs) And, um, and there's an appreciation there. Right. And there's like, there's that lived experience around, Hey, I want to, I want to create environments that invite folks in and create more belonging. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that uh, because it strikes me as interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of an unconscious thing. I think that I've been living with pretty much my whole life. And then it manifests in these ways. Like you said, I notice that I just, I veer towards people who are not quite like me, or I certainly try to seek out more folks who are not like me if I'm not in an environment where that's not possible. So creating a sense of belonging. I think we as facilitators don't necessarily have control over how someone perceives an experience, right? All we can do is do our best to try, given what we know, to create an experience that will be open and inviting to the best of our ability. And then each person, each human that shows up gets to interpret that experience however they want given their context, which comes from all kinds of places, right? Their culture, society, what people have told them before. And we bring it all with us. And in each experience, we are interpreting given our own context. So I just, I try to be sensitive when I'm 
creating a designed facilitation experience to try to anticipate what someone else's cultural cultural background might be. You know, the fact is, is we just don't know. People have gone through, especially now, people have gone through so much. I just try to be really sensitive about what other people may or may not have experienced in their life. And certainly, you know, in this this short time that we're all living through together. <laughs> so that's a really interesting point. It reminds me of, you know, songwriters will write songs and their listeners will interpret them however they want, right? But, you know, the thing about the songwriters is that, you know, they're not in the room with these people, <laughs> <laughs> expecting them all to like get to some kind of outcome at the end, right? And so we're kind of in this interesting predicament around, yeah, they could lay the best plan possible, but it doesn't resonate or it doesn't hit them in a way that they feel safe or connect with. And it's still important for us to kind of help foster that and yeah. get the team where they need to go. So I'm curious, what are some of your go-to ways to, A, diagnose that maybe it's not landing, and then be pivoting and maybe correcting for that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is such a good question. As a facilitator, right, it's our job to hold space for everyone. And I try to approach it with with as much empathy as I possibly can. But like you said, knowing on the other side, there needs to be some kind of outcome. So this kind of goes back to that conversation in our heads, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking about what's the overall outcome? What am I trying to achieve for a client if, the, if that's the case? And what are the humans in this space experiencing? So honestly, I think one of the, be- the best way I've, I do it is just through listening, <laughs> a lot of listening and conversations and some creative exercises, at least, to break up the energy or create some energy around around what we're trying to accomplish. I love using just writing prompts. So having some silent time where people can reflect on a prompt, write it down so that they are grounded and solid with what their answer is, right, before being influenced by others. And then I'd like people to just share on their own what came up for them. And then usually inevitably, once everybody shares, then then it creates like this collective energy. Usually there's some commonalities. Sometimes there's some differences. And then we kind of poke around in both of those areas like, oh, isn't it interesting that so many of you feel this way? And what are some of the ways that people feel differently? That's, that's always where some juicy, juicy stuff is in that the differences. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of this idea of kind of moving into the conflict, right? Mm. It's like those juicy bits are in the differences and how we can explore that together in a, in a way that's, um, I would say, courteous. Courteous and safe, right? Like we want people mm-hmm. to feel safe if they feel, if they have a difference. So what, actually, I love that idea. What do, what do you see as ways to create safety for people when you see differences like that? I think questions are 
powerful tools as facilitators. So visualizing. Mm. So you talked about, and I wanted to come back to that to you, this notion of silent writing to prompts, this kind mm-hmm. of silent time. And, you know, especially if they've written, if it's virtually, then they've written it in the mural. We've got this visual collateral we can kind of point mm. back to. And as facilitators, we can kind of triangulate things that are different, especially if they're sifting things up and we can just point it out. We can just kind of ask people how they feel about this. Yeah. You know, like, this is what I'm noticing. What do you all think? Yeah. The combination of a visual and the and just powerful questions is always, uh, I mean, it seems so simple and obvious, <laughs> but it really works, right? Like having something to visualize, whether that's a physical thing. I also actually like sometimes to have people... This is a little more challenging for some folks, but to to create a visual in their mind and then bring it to life mm-hmm. if they can. Yes. Having people imagine the future mm-hmm. and present it in the way that others can see it. Yeah. So it moves from between their ears to out in the open. That's right. Because thoughts become things, right? That's how anything comes to life is it's an idea. That's right. That was a thought and it needs to be said. And then it has more likelihood of actually becoming true, right? And, you know, it's not even just the other folks in the room. Internally, we had a process that was not very well defined because I was kind of just managing it organically. Mm -hmm. And I was handing that off to someone else on the team. And it seemed quite simple to me. And I thought I'd explained all the pieces but because I never wrote it down mm. as like a step-by-step process, they weren't clear on all the little pieces, the little handoffs, right? Mm. And so the first time they ran it, it went horribly wrong. And so we sat down to actually document it so they could under- fully understand it. And even when I was looking at it, I was like, well, this is a silly way to do it, you know, because I had just been organically doing it like in my head and just kind of like having people just like pinging someone and say, can you do this now? Can you do this now? When I wrote it down, it became clear to me that like two other steps were redundant and one was out of order. And so I think, you know, just visualizing things just always helps us move forward, even if it's just one person. Now you imagine that how that lack of clarity compounds when you got more people in the room. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of process. If you have a process and you can write it down, it can be really powerful and so efficient, right? Because it might be messy in the beginning, like you're saying, like there are different pieces coming from all different parts of who knows where. But then once you collectively can can organize it and share it with everyone so everyone can contribute to it and make it more effective or efficient, I mean, it just... I'm sure I can only imagine that it has helped you and your business quite a bit to really solidify those processes and communicate them. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the trick is helping people understand that that's essentially what we mean when we say, hey, let's create a sketch or a prototype or a concept for your idea. Mm-hmm. Like, how does it come to life? And so often people want to say what it is. They want to des- des- describe its attributes. So like a functional specification. It's going to have mm-hmm. a 10-inch nose and it's going to have... But like, that's, that's not very helpful from a understanding how to actually do it if if that makes sense because the user is going to interact with a thing or other members of our team is going to have to like perform a process and if we just start listing out all the criteria people don't fall in love with criteria right (laughs) right so are you i think i hear you saying 
you want, you'd rather focus on the what is the thing trying to do? Like, how is that thing making that person's life better? Not necessarily the how, but what is what is the thing? What are we trying to accomplish like in the end goal for this person, right? Well, the way I usually describe it, it's interesting because a lot of people say the how is not necessary. But I think when we're trying to leap forward and like present our idea, it can be really helpful to present our view of how it could be done. Mm -hmm. But we have to marry that with the why. I think often people get stuck on the what, and it's like hard to get that clarity on like this, like what it is. But if we understand why we're doing it and kind of how we're going to generally approach it, then we've got a really clear approach on the what kind of comes out in that work, if that makes sense. I think too often when people sit down and think about the what, they end up writing like lists and lists of like descriptive, like <laughs> I think it's more powerful to get the story behind how the user is going to accomplish mm-hmm. what they're trying to do, especially if we're talking about a, a user process. But And oftentimes when we're prototyping concepts or ideas or getting people to come together, it's like a product where a user is trying to accomplish a task, an internal process that you know a team is having to go through right or procedures Mm -hmm. and so if we really put ourselves in the shoes of the person that's doing that stuff and thinking about how they're going to accomplish what they need to accomplish because otherwise if we just think about the what we end up listing a bunch of bullet points like features oh the user will be able to like add another user they'll be able to set the roles and permissions but i want to know how they do those things because that's when the real like concrete solution starts to like present itself right yeah so this is so interesting because i it's it's like where in the process depending on what you're trying to accomplish where in the process do you put the what and where in the process do you put the how like i think starting with the why is always really yeah i mean that's that you just always want to start with the why right like why are we doing this thing or why are we trying to accomplish this or why am i trying to accomplish this what you're saying is when you're thinking about a product, you do want to think about how a little bit earlier than I think if if when we as humans are trying to accomplish something for ourselves, and now I'm taking it down to, to an individual mm. level, but if I'm trying to accomplish something, I might not at all know how I'm going to do it. I know why I want to do it. And I might kind of, and I have a probably a good idea of what I'm going to do, but I might not need, I, I might not know at all how it's all going to come together. I just see for my future, for instance, that this is what I want. And then I just take small steps to get there. The, the order is a little different depending on what you're trying to accomplish. I agree. And I, I think that it might have to do with also the granularity of what we're kind of the problem we're kind of approaching and how we're breaking stuff down. Yeah. Because take, for instance, when we're doing a design sprint, we want to be very, very clear on the why early on. And we also get kind of fairly clear on the what, because we're kind of, we, we have our goal. Yeah. But the question is like, how are we going to accomplish that goal? And getting a very opinionated and very specific like direction on the how is important. I think where people falter is when they take that big what, that big objective, yeah. and they break it down into tiny little what's. Mm. Because those tiny little what's are just like still don't have any opinion in them. They just like you basically decomposed it down into like okay, it's got to have a door handle. It's got to it's got to open. 
It's got to allow airflow. Mm-hmm. It's got to not go below 50 degrees, you know? And it's just like, okay, yes, we all can think about requirements, but we need to go beyond that and, and really put forth our creative ideas on how this comes about in the world. Even if we don't have all the hows figured out, we need to have some some broad strokes. And if we don't start thinking about that stuff, we haven't really gotten in the solutioning. Mm. And I agree, we don't want to... We don't want to start with solutioning, but once we get into into some sort of solutioning, we can't stay stuck in the what. Because if we keep just like drilling down more granular versions of the what, we haven't really gotten into like a concrete solution, right? It's like it leaves too much open to interpretation. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because in the end, you're creating a tan. You know, typically, I'm imagining a tangible thing, right? So you you that that is much more of a possibly clear kind of step-by-step way to go about it. And there are some processes that just might not be quite as clear. And it takes, I think in prototyping, because you're, you're testing, right? You're iterating. But actually, now that I think about it, even in coaching, we do that too, because we're all sort of experimenting in life. If I'm trying to accomplish a goal for myself, well, this might be a way to do it. Let me try this over here. Let's see how close I got. If that didn't work so well, let me just make a little change over this direction and let me try something else, right? And the the idea is to just not give up and keep going back to the why. <laughs> why are we doing this, right? That's right. So I feel like the whole experimental mindset is kind of jumping a little bit into the how and just go, what if we do it this way? Mm. What if we do it this way? Yeah. And not getting so stuck into like trying to get a perfect what. So the perfect what is like, to me, waterfall and doing so much like, you know, leaning so heavy in the specification. So I wanted to come back to, because you mentioned a, a little earlier, this notion of creating the silent writing time. And I think that's what maybe got me off on this, this that <laughs> tangent that I'm passionate about. But I wanted to get your thoughts on why that's so important. Like, what do you think is happening in the room? And, you know, facilitators that might be a bit skeptical about Well, I thought we were supposed to have conversations. I thought we were supposed to get people connected. Why is the silent time so important if if our goals are to get people, include people and get people connected? Oh, wow. Yeah, I love that question. I think it's important to have that silent time because each individual has something unique to contribute to the collective of the group. And in order to not be influenced by what others are saying or contributing, it's important that they listen to their own thoughts or ideas or opinions or beliefs about whatever it is that is being shared or whatever we're trying to accomplish so that you can have more variety, possibly more diversity, more like genuine personal truth in what you're bringing to the table. So I think even just a little bit of that self-reflection, quiet time, and and that, that could be quiet time with, um, it could be writing, but it could also be a, sh- a small drawing just to kind of take some of the thoughts and bring them out into the room. Um, so that you know that they're coming straight from you and your thinking, each individual's thinking. That's awesome. I think it makes the collective 
stronger. I agree. It totally makes the collective stronger. And it's the reason why we love silent work and giving everyone time to kind of collect their thoughts and bring their best ideas forward. And in the same answer, you also mentioned energy. Mm. And I'd love to hear your thoughts around, you know, energy, how that plays a role in facilitation and any advice you have around energy, whether it's observing it or maybe even influencing it. Hmm. Oh my gosh. You know, in the lab, within the past couple of weeks, we were having a conversation about this, about how do you, what are some ways that you can change the energy level of a group and being clear on what you want that energy to be and why, like, what is that going to contribute to the, the project or what you're trying to accomplish? So this idea of kind of a of a silent, more quiet energy, right, is a lot is calming, whereas you might have energy that is like more uplifted or fun, and just being clear on like why you want to change that energy. There's just diff- different approaches, and really being attached back to the why, like why do we want to change the energy of a particular room. Yeah, that's, I think, a power move as a facilitator is constantly helping people connect to that why, because I think that's one reason we might face, I, I would say that's a common reason why there's dysfunction in a group, because people don't understand the why, like, you know, they don't know why you're asking them to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think actually along those lines, instructions are so important. Over my many years of being um, moderating, facilitating, and doing small workshops, having very clear instructions is so key. You want to tell people, not always, but there are times where you really want to tell people exactly what they're going to do and what to expect, unless you want some element of surprise, right? And it's contributing Mm. to the overall good of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I like that. This kind of intentional surprise Mm -hmm. can often lead to the aha moments, especially Mm -hmm. if we're trying to help teach people a thing or help help with capability building. Mm. Sometimes those surprise shocking elements will sometimes make people have those like paradigm shifts or aha moments. Yeah. So that reminds me of storytelling when we can find something surprising in a group and then bring that out as an example as we debrief or report on some of our insights that helps to bring alive some insight that we learned. Yeah, for sure. Stories and narrative can build more connection, which we Mm -hmm. mentioned before. So I guess that that was one of my questions earlier was what what other kinds of connections are there? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's connections to the data. And then here there's connections to the insights. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe the narratives help us kind of create those connections. So that's cool. Well, you know, we're coming up on time here. I want to ask you one more question before we go to our closer. And that is, Given all this stuff that we're kind of talking about, you know, the general importance of facilitation and creating belonging and inclusion and, you know, some of the moves we make to ensure that everyone's kind of with us and all that goodness, I'm kind of curious where you're looking forward as far as the future. And so what what do you think is possible in the near term and what are you hopeful for as things kind of continue to advance and in the field Hmm. 
Well, I do think it's really fascinating to think about this idea of hybrid presentation, hybrid workshop, hybrid conferences. As I've been watching how things are unfolding, I think not only from the kind of technical angle, but also what connection looks like when we think about ourselves in a hybrid space. So I'm going to share a story about something that I've experienced lately where it really brought home this idea of what hybrid may or may not look like. So I'm a longtime practitioner of Qigong, which is, it's not a martial art. It's, it's a way to move your energy through moving meditation. I've been doing it for years. It's always been an in-person class. And of course, over the pandemic, our highly skilled instructor teacher, she has had to move everything online. And now this is a practice where it's very visual. We're very connected because we're all doing the same moves at the same time. And she also does some corrections, so she'll come around the room and kind of help you with your posturing. But all of this moved online, so over the past 18 plus months, most of us have just seen each other on screens. And recently, she's experimented to have a smaller group of people back in a room while also paying attention to people online. And so what what has been really fascinating to watch during that process and be a part of is how she, as a facilitator, needs to watch her energy, watch the energy of everyone online, and watch the energy of everyone in the physical space. So I'm going to be super fascinated to see how technically do people deal with this And as facilitators, how are we going to watch and manage our own minds around all of the different spaces that we may need to pay attention to? Because now we're going to have to make sure that we are taking care of and creating space for people in an online setting as well as an in-person setting. And I think it's going to be just a, a huge challenge and really, really interesting to watch. Yeah, we're certainly very intrigued and have been doing our part to kind of push things forward with the hybrid guide we released. And, yeah. you know, there's definitely going to be hybrid elements of the Control the Room conference this year. So mm. super excited about all of that and just watching how things develop because I think the technology is going to get better and better mm-hmm. to support different use cases and needs. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. And, We'll all be watching that together and contributing in ways that we can to move it forward. So with that, I just want to say that it was a pleasure having you on the show. and just want to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought. Well, thank you. So I do have a final thought. My final thought is when you run across someone that you find intriguing, I want to challenge you to go ahead and approach that person, whether that's online or in person, and have a conversation about anything that is, whether it's somewhat trivial in your mind or something deep, just anything that intrigues you about that person, 
Because, you know, that is how we met, actually, Douglas, <laughs> is we were at a conference together, a design sprint conference, and I was fascinated by facilitation, and I decided to approach you and ask you about it. And here we are. So you never know what's going to happen when you approach someone that you think is intriguing. So that's my challenge to everyone, because there are lots of possibilities there. <laughs> People can find me at paularosecki.com. And I currently am holding some shorter coaching sessions and with a topic around how to manage your mother from another culture. This came out of some workshops that I've been doing recently, and I see the need out there. And I also spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, so I hope to see you there. Excellent. Well, Paula, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure chatting, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Douglas. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com